Welcome to the show. My name is James Nielsen Watt. And in this show, we interview interesting, inspiring, and successful people so you can learn the secrets to success and can play the game of life, business, health, and happiness better. And the philosophy we take here is if I'm leveling up my game, you get to level up yours as well. So get ready to listen to some inspiring people who have figured out how to have success in all areas of life, health, happiness, wealth, business. We're gonna be interviewing them in this show so that you can learn the secrets to success that they share with practical advice that you can take and use today. So if you enjoy the show, please subscribe, please leave us a review, and please share it with your friends because if I can help you and you can help others, then we can help more people together and we can all level up our game together. My guest today is Kerwin Ray, one of the most successful businessmen, entrepreneurs, investors, and international speakers in the corporate world. Since starting his first business at 23 years of age, he's successfully overcome both business and personal adversity to achieve massive success as a high-level entrepreneur. As one of Australia's leading business strategists, Kerwin has helped business owners succeed for over a decade, having taught over 100,000 people in 11 countries and over 154 different industries. Through his seminars, workshops, and consulting, his clients have grown their businesses in excess of hundreds of millions of dollars collectively. Welcome to the show, Kerwin. How are you? Mate, unstoppable. How are you? Good, good. I was just saying before, right, through my years of entrepreneurial journey and chiropractic college and things like that, uh, following you for quite a while and, and always had you set the notifications so your stuff would pop up and, and really enjoyed, you know, a lot of the mindset stuff, parenting stuff, things like that, not just, you know, the, the business sort of thing. And it's kind of nice to go full circle and actually have you on the show and, and interview and, and, and get to pick your brain. So I appreciate you coming Mate, on. Thank you so much. It's nice to be here. My wife's super And you've excited. got kids as well, have you? Yeah, I've got two kids. got a two-and-a-half-year-old. Two and a half year old and a five month old. Wow. Okay, mate, you're uh, you're into it. Yeah, we thought you we have just, certainly signed up for the university degree. Yeah, we thought. Um, <laughs> I love kids. Let's let's get it done, and uh, and yeah. then you know then we can maybe. My, my friends are thinking, no, I have one, and then we'll space it out. And I thought, no, nah, let's just get it done. It's tough. Get it out of things. the way. But um, nice work, mate. Change your life, as you've already probably experienced. It's definitely uh, my firstborn. I got two boys. Firstborn has been. Uh, my lucky charm. It's what uh, propelled me forward mindset-wise, everything. It's been- Yeah, me too. Yeah, I can absolutely relate to that in so many levels. It's like I had to step my game up. One interesting thing for me has been like, when you don't have kids, you think you don't have any time. And then you get kids and you don't really have any time. And you think, what the hell was I doing all that time when mm. I didn't have time and I wasn't getting stuff done? Yeah, no, I agree. The moment I found out my ex-wife was pregnant, I literally went through the entire business model and just simplified everything based around the concept of time, just to yeah. be able to have more time. Yeah, it's 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 definitely been a different way of thinking of things. Talk to me about how 2020 went for you. A lot of us had to to pivot, right? How's it been for you in 2020 personally, but also in, in business? Because you do a lot of live events, you a lot of, a lot of things going on. How'd things yep. change? Mate, they changed massively and radically and very quickly. Um, on the one hand, we were very prepared. And by very prepared, I was prepared for an event. I've been preparing for like some kind of financial or economic meltdown for about eight years now. And so I knew some kind of an event was coming. I didn't know exactly what it was going to look like. 
Um, but then when Corona came around the corner, I was in, I remember it, Corona coming onto my radar on January 4. And on January 15 or January 12, I was in, in New York and I just kept on following it. I just kept on following it. And I was seeing what was going on in China at the time. I could see the the mass lockdowns. I could see that you know all the major brands uh, out of China weren't shipping out. And I was like, man, why is no one fucking talking about this? And so I, in many respects, I was a bit of ahead of the game. And so we had our we did our first biosecurity threat response plan on January 24, and then you know we proceeded to carry on with business. And I think by the time Corona hit, all of our clients were fully across what was going to happen, the lockdowns. And it was really interesting because at first when I introduced these concepts to my clients, I'm like, no. This stuff is never going to happen. And this is about six weeks out before it actually did happen. And so on the one hand, we were very prepared. But on the other hand, you know, how do you prepare for a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic? You know, there are only so many things that you can do to prepare. And we did as many as what we could. Our clients, and that's probably the thing, and it's kind of interesting, the thing that I'm not most proud of from 2020 isn't me. It's my clients in terms of how they pivoted and how they responded and, you know, the success that they were not only able to, in some cases, maintain, but also create. We had trade, you know, businesses in different areas of trade that went on to have record months, you know, record quarters and record years to date just by pivoting into some form of a, you know, a digital model. And so, you know, in many respects, on the one hand, I was very proud of my clients. But on the other hand, when we look at what happened to us, you know, 96% of events industry, events companies in Australia got wiped out last year in 2020. Now, many of those are coming back and rebuilding, but 96% is a pretty significant impact on any, you know, on any industry. And, um, you know, we were in the 4% that survived. We took a massive, a massive hit, you know, an eight figure hit. And luckily, because we run good business and we practice good business, we were able to withstand that kind of uh, an impact. Because most businesses, you know, like most of the event industry, if they take a 10, you know, an eight figure or even a seven figure, or in some cases, even a six figure impact, you know, that's enough to take a business completely out of you know, out of a category, out, out, you know, and out of the running in any in any industry. But we're very lucky that you know we, we we have a lot of preparation. We do a lot of planning, and so although it it it, it didn't take us out, it certainly hit us. You know, in a very significant way from a financial perspective. But then on the flip side of that, we doubled down on new technology. We doubled down on innovation and pivot. You know, we built, we just finished building, as I mentioned to you when I sat down, a beautiful studio here in Byron Bay, probably one of the, the top um, sound rated studios in Byron Bay, podcast studio, full studio and office here. And so, you know, as a pivot to that, we've accelerated our digital model probably by about five years, you know, in terms of our ability to deliver events digitally, our ability to do things digitally, deliver to our clients. You know, for most of 2020, we delivered, gosh, I don't know how many events it was, but it was probably close to 20 events, you know, all, uh, you know, out of a studio here in Byron Bay. And to be able to do that at large and be, you know, servicing clients in countries that we'd never been able to service before, that was... Um, that was that was pretty unique for us, but like many companies, we're still kind of getting back to I guess what you'd call pre-pandemic uh, levels of volume. But at the same time, you know, I I look at the things that we've created, I look at the experience, I look at the innovation, I look at the growth, and I'm like, there's always a fair exchange. You know, there's 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 never a lack. The you know, lack only exists in a human mind in most cases. And it was just a lot of really, a lot of digging to see, okay, where is the balance here? Oh, that hurt. Okay, but where's the balance? Okay, there's some, oh, that's a great bonus. Okay, so what's the deficit? And just constantly trying to you know, marry that up and just see that there was balance all the way through. I think it's interesting because it, it really uh, shows vulnerabilities in a business. And a lot of us can think we're doing pretty well. Big time. And then when something happens, it's like, actually, we had no plan. There's no margin here. It's just not working. But on yeah. the other side of that is you got to adapt. You know what I mean? And and I think that 
you know, if you if you're running things well, if you're thinking about things, if you're planning stuff, and, and clearly you had and and did, there's all this opportunity. I think that it's fast track a lot of stuff that was already going to happen. Like this idea of of being more and more online, it, it's inevitable, right? Uh, this just kind of pushed it forward. And those of us who already uh, capitalized, 2020 was huge uh, for me in business. It really helped me right. pivot. My practices were closed, and then I had to I had more time. Like I was in practice, uh, still managing some stuff because I was, you know, emotionally attached to it more than anything else. And then I got a chance to actually be free to do the other thing and went, man, I actually like this more. I'm more fulfilled by it. There's more success here. I'm happy. I get to choose more things that I want. And it took off. And I feel like without that, well, you know, a bunch of horrible stuff has obviously happened. Out of it has has led to a lot of opportunity for for a lot of people. Um, Indeed. You know, I think I attended a Tony Robbins event uh, Unleashed Power Within virtual. And there was something like 100,000 people there. And that's a guy that could have fallen over, similar to yourself, without pivoting properly. And now they're running lots of virtual events and it's opened up yes. broader possibilities for people to reach. And I think it's, I think there's amazing things that have come from it. You said something interesting around limitations being, you know, in the human mind. Um, I often find myself, you know, as we all do, I, I assume to, to some degree, coming up against these limiting beliefs that I know aren't maybe mine, right? They've been handed to me by friends, family, uh, generationally as well. And my question is, how do you think we can almost think more without limitations? How do we, how do I identify them and pivot past them? Because for me, I had a history of anxiety and depression and and all that kind of crap. And and it definitely came from these walls of limiting beliefs and not Mm -hmm facing them appropriately, not pivoting around them, not, not doing things different. And, and it's way better now, but still it's like those limiting beliefs can, can hold us back. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, look, I think, you know, there's two types of limiting beliefs. There's a limiting belief that you're aware of and there's a limiting belief that you're not. You know, there's probably more, but we'll keep it nice and simple because that's the kind of guy I am. And I think, you know, the biggest challenge for most people is they're, they're working with a, a speed limiter on their car you know, they're, they're in a race car, they're, they're in a race, they're in competition, but they have no idea that they're running a, a system that can go a lot faster, if not for the fact that there's something throttling, you know, the, 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 the engine's capacity to rev harder. And so I think when we look at limiting beliefs, you know, there's, to me, the most important thing that we need to do is become aware, you know, and I, whether I'm talking about business or whether I'm talking about personal development or parenting or, you know, anything to do with spirituality or health, you know, I always, you know, the cornerstone of all of my content is around consciousness. And I don't necessarily refer to consciousness in the context of a spiritual format, although, you know, it lends itself to be applied there as well. You know, I talk about consciousness in the context of literal awareness, like literally being, oh, I wasn't aware of that. Because the human brain is a fascinating thing. It's a cognitive miser and its number one job is to filter vast volumes of information to prevent the organism, you know, from essentially going into overwhelm, which, you know, increases the probability of, you know, um, something bad happening, which can prevent evolution. And so when you consider the human brain processes 16 trillion bits of information every one second, the average human being is aware of about seven bits of that information. Maybe, you know, if they're an elite conscious athlete, they might be aware of as much as 2000 bits of information. So it's fair to say there's a lot going on 
in the environment. There's a lot going on in our brain that we are just completely oblivious to. And a huge part of that comes down to not only our behaviors, but more importantly, the way that we think. Because ultimately, you know, our behaviors are a product of a psychology, an operating system. Our psychology is our operating system. And the way that psychology, the way that operating system is programmed will determine the, the behaviors, you know, of, of, of the human. And I think the biggest challenge that a lot of people have is they have these unconscious beliefs. And again, they have these limiting beliefs, I should say, but there's just a very high degree of unconsciousness. There's a very high degree of ignorance. And so when you have a limiting belief and you're not aware of it, you, in most cases, will assume that you're not the problem. You know, you'll look extrinsically, you'll look out externally, you'll look at, you know, outside factors. And, you know, one of the biggest mistakes that I see people make, you know, in every level of business is they approach success for the most part as an extrinsic um, pursuit. Well, you know, well, once I do this on the outside, then I'll be successful. And then once I do this on the outside and then I'm successful, then I'll be happy. And, you know, happiness becomes an extrinsic pursuit. Success becomes an extrinsic pursuit, you know, not really, you know, lending itself to the awareness for most people to understand that, you know, when we look at success, it's an intrinsic game. You know, when we look at happiness, it's an intrinsic game. And I know how cliche th this sounds, you know, when you just look at the, the, the stats from positive psychology, from Selection's work, we understand that you know people who are already happy are 78% more likely to experience success in other areas of their life. Yet when you look at people's pursuit, you know, and their goals to deal with their limiting beliefs, why do you want to remove limiting beliefs? Why do you want to, you know, become better? Well, I want to achieve success. And if you could have success, what would that give you that I don't have right now? And they go, well, I'd be, you know, what else, what else, what else? And ultimately, you know, one of the things that I find people want is they want to be happy. And it's like, well, here's the here's the here's the catch, mate. You know, if you're already happy, you're 78% more likely to achieve success. But if you're pursuing success as a pathway to happiness, you know, you it's going to be a very long, emotional, most cases stressful, uh, and uncomfortable game for you because it does, you know, what what we experience on the outside is nothing more than you know a manifestation of what's going on in the inside, and limiting beliefs, you know, make up a huge part of what we are able to see in our environment. You know, because the way a psychology is built in my world, and, and again, I just, I like to keep things nice and simple. To me, the, a psychology is made up of four layers. The first layer of a psychology is, is the stories. It's the stories that we told, and that essentially becomes the code. You know, and I say this to people, and a lot of people, you know, at first they're a little bit surprised, but then once it lands, they realize the, 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 the true nature of what I'm talking about. Like, we are a trillion dollar supercomputer in a box. Like, we are uh, probably the most sophisticated piece of biotechnology that this, this planet has ever seen. You know, and so with that, we have enormous amounts of complexity, but we also have enormous amounts of function, you know, that if we were to understand aspects of that complexity that would be able to, you know, access. And one of those functions, you know, that most people don't know how to access is how to use their brain effectively, because the brain is an operating system that when programmed effectively, you know, is going to produce very predictable, very precise, in most cases, you know, very consistent behaviors. But if people aren't producing predictable, consistent behaviors, in most cases, there's a limitation there. And those limitations are a product of those stories because those stories, that's the first layer. That's how we absorb everything. We look to the world and people tell us stories. That's how, you know, generations of, of trauma is passed down from generation to generation. Stories are being told, you know, as kids, that's how we absorb information from the environment. You know, we look at what's going on and we make a story in our head. We watch TV and stories are fed to us. But after a while, what our brain does is our brain being the efficient, you know, cognitive miser that it is, it likes to create shortcuts. And this is where we get into beliefs because you can't sit there and think about every story that you've ever been told about money. You can't sit there and think about every story that you've ever been told about good parenting or bad parenting or discipline, you know, without it taking up an enormous amount of headspace and enormous amount of energy. And so what the brain does 
you know, in its, in its glory and levels of efficiency is it creates these shortcuts in the form of icons that we call beliefs. And a belief, you know, is applied to a, a psychology as a filtering system so that we don't have to remember everything that we're thinking about. And we can just go, oh, that's right. That's what I believe. I don't have to remember or recall the story. But what's really interesting, and I, you know, I tell this story all the time, you know, when we talk about, you know, behaviors that come from limiting beliefs and in most cases aren't even ours. There's an old wives tale about, uh, you know, a, a woman who's cooking a lamb roast and every time she cooks a lamb roast, she cuts the end off the lamb roast before she puts it in the oven. And one day her husband says to her, says, honey, look, I, I notice every time we do a lamb roast, you always cut the end off it. Like, why? Just out of curiosity, what's that all about? And she goes, well, I don't know. That's what my mum used to do. And he goes, well, what did your mum do? And he goes, she says, well, I don't know. And he goes, well, let's ring mum now and ask her because I'm fucking curious because you've been doing this for the last 10 years and I've never once thought, why do you do it? Now I am. I want to know. And so they ring mum and they say, mum, why do you cut the end off the lamb roast? And mum goes, well, because that's what your grandmother used to do. And they say, well, grandma, what did grandma do? And they go, well, I don't know, but this is what she always used to do. And so that's what I do. And so, okay, let's get grandma on a three-way call. So they ring grandma and they say, grandma, you know how every time you cook a lamb roast, you cut the end off? Just out of curiosity, why did you do that? And they go, well, love, back in my day, we only had really small ovens. And the only way we could fit like a lamb in the oven was by cutting the end off it. You know, yet two generations later, they're still repeating the behaviors that are based on a belief system that is completely outdated. You know, and so at some point we've got to become aware of why are we doing this and then start looking at where does it, what is the origin of that code? What is the origin of that programming? What is the origin of that story? And is it still, you know, does that, does that code, does that story still apply to today, you know, to this day and age? And that's where, you know, we start looking at the brain and I don't know, I, I'm, I'm starting to have a lot of my own awarenesses around this, but I, I look at the brain very much like a, a, a bio-organic computer system. Like it's a trillion dollars of, of biotech in a box. If I could replicate you and put you on a factory line, that's a trillion dollar idea right there. But by the nature of the way that the brain works, it's very programmable. And you've only got to look at history to understand how programmable you know, our brains are to produce behaviors. And to give you, you know, solid context around, the, you know, the, the nature of programmability, gosh, there was a story I wanted to tell you, you know, we look at computer science and computer science for the last, you know, let's call it since the 1950s, 1960s, maybe 1940s, you know, they've been trying to replicate the processing power and the capabilities of the human brain, yet they haven't even come close. Quantum computing is the closest that we've become. But when you consider that most people get a better walkthrough for their iPhone than they do for their own operating system, it helps us understand why so few people really understand how to, you know, utilize the technology that they've got because no one, for the most part, has ever been shown how to use it. Hundred percent. You've said so much. There's been so much gold in, in, in what you've said. I want to deconstruct that a little bit. I think that what I take from that is. We have to be not trying to understand every single little thing that we're doing and thinking because that's the whole problem that we have, right? Our brain has to have these beliefs, otherwise it's going to melt because it can't possibly process everything, or at least maybe it is going to process, but then we're not actually going to take any action. So there needs to be these, these pattern detectors that we use to filter our life to, to make us continue to progress, right? I need to know that you know this is going to happen when I do this thing. If I'm having to assess every single individual situation and there's no patterns there at all, things are going to move very slowly, but it's about looking at what patterns I'm using to, to guide my behaviors and therefore my actions. And for me, I look at what am I getting from what I'm doing? 
And is it in alignment with what I'm wanting to achieve and how I'm wanting to feel? And if, for example, in a relationship, if I'm doing certain things or thinking or believing certain things and it's, it's, it's not going well, I'm going to look at that and go, hmm, maybe there's something that I can change. And some stuff I do is I look at my process uh, or I look at my perceptions. So if, for example, you know, my, my wife's breastfeeding and she's not sleeping uh, all night because I got two kids and we, we co-sleep and, you know, sleep isn't necessarily super crisp. If I'm going and asking her a super intellectual question about some stuff when she's tired um, and she gets shitty with me, is that her? Is that the timing or my perception? And so if I'm asking her a time, it's clearly going to be not the best time to ask that kind of question. And she gets upset. I can look at the process by which I asked her. It was probably the wrong time. Probably shouldn't ask then. Maybe shouldn't have asked it at all. If I say, hey, babe, love you. And she goes, mm, like this. Maybe for her, that was meaningful. She wasn't acknowledging me, but she was lying on the couch trying to make sure our baby didn't wake up. And so I'm like, oh, no, you don't love me. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. When really I'm misperceiving the situation. And I think that for me to, to loop back to, like I said, you know, history of anxiety, depression, things like that, when I'm in that state, there are these programs, these filters that are influencing how I see the world and they're influencing my perceptions, they're influencing my processes and they're feeding me information that isn't supporting how I want to be. The only way I changed that was to, to, to question the beliefs, to think about the things I was thinking about, thinking about the rules that I'd created. And as when we look at it, then we can say, ah, oh, okay, is this serving me for from how I'm wanting to feel, how I'm wanting to act, what I want to have? Um, I think that's really interesting. Is there anything you want to add to that? No. And, I, and that's, I think, the important thing is everyone's got their own process. And it's important to, the, the sooner you can work out what your process is, you know, the, the sooner you're going to find, you know, reprieve when it comes to, you know, the things that you're trying to, you know, find relief for. Because oftentimes we, you know, we, we find ourselves you know, in resistance to the reality of what we've created. And it's not until we, you know, surrender the resistance and explore not just where the resistance is coming from, but more importantly, where the behaviors are coming from, you know, where the perception is coming from, you know, where the wound, you know, is is coming from that we get to actually do the work. And I think this is one of the things that's missing in, you know, in personal development is a lot of people think doing the work is writing out a goals list. You know, a lot of people think you know, doing the work is a values elicitation and it's not. Doing the work only starts when you are able to identify clearly what the problems are, you know. And if you look at marriage, David Snarch wrote an incredible book called Passionate Marriage. And, you know, there's an incredible quote in there that I often refer to that says, marriage doesn't start until the problems do, you know. Business, and I would go on far as to say, business doesn't start until the problems too. Life doesn't start until the problems because it's not until that we, we, we start identifying the problems that we have to do the work. And this is what so few people are willing to do. You know, anyone, most people are willing to sit down and write out a list of goals because it's, you know, it's aspirational, but when it comes down to identifying, you know, what are the thought patterns behind certain behaviors and where did those thought patterns come from? And what is the work that I need to do on myself in order to clear this stuff? I think there's a lot to be said for you know that type of work versus other types of work it's very easy to to talk about what you want to write about it to think about it to make a vision board and and yeah. a lot of people miss the fact that it's actually going and doing the stuff not not planning about not talking about it um which is interesting you said before i think it was people who are who are happier 78 percent more likely to to achieve success i think that when we are you know, when we are more positive, when we're more happy, we see things differently. Our brain's in a different physio physiological state. If you're in a survival mode, you're seeing things 
in a short-term survival fashion. You're you're looking for strategies and tactics in the moment, not necessarily uh, you know what's going to happen long-term. And and in business, I definitely see that with my clients uh, a lot. It's it's when something's not going right, I'm changing the tactic. I'm changing the tactic instead of looking at the overall picture. And I think yeah, you're right when you're your, your physiologic state is going to influence which patterns you pull out to use to make sense of the situation. And so if, if you're more happy, if, if you're more conscious, if you're more aware of why I'm doing this thing and have I already succeeded, suddenly it changes. I know for me, when it was not about money, suddenly money would flow. And that's the irony. And from interviewing a lot of people, we, there's this consistency that comes up. The first is get guidance and mentoring. And, and the second is that uh, if you're focused on uh, money, you're not going to achieve it. And that mindset is the most important part to this. And it's hard, I think, for people who are struggling. I know it was for me when when you're struggling to look at it and go, yeah, that's nice. You can say that because you're rich. Why do you think it's so tough for people to to realize that, hey, this is an intrinsic game, not an ex- extrinsic game? All you got to do is look at the television, look at Disneyland. You know, Everything has been painted in a very extrinsic fashion. But what a lot of people don't realize is the consequences of playing an extrinsic game when it comes to internal motivation, when it comes to internal drive. And, you know, even just understanding, and the, the, the behavioral research has already done that. And if you haven't read any of Dan Pink's work, if anyone's listening to this, you know, I suggest that you do because Dan Pink's work is incredible, especially uh, the book Drive. The surprising truth about what really motivates us is really looking at the core of intrinsic drive, but looking at the effects of extrinsic drive or extrinsic markers, you know, and, and, and there's one bit of research that I often pull on from Dan that, you know, people who focus on money as a motivation are eight times more likely to engage in deceit, deception, or fraudulent related behaviors. And they're also about six to seven times more likely to experience stress-related illness, you know, that, that goes along with that. And so there's a lot of evidence to suggest that money or extrinsic factors fuck people up. But what's really interesting is our schooling system, for the most part, hasn't adopted to that. You know, our educational system where, you know, we're being brought into the world of how to become successful, you know, your first personal development program is school, you know, isn't really, you know, factoring that. And that's why I'm a big fan of Montessori. My son's been doing Montessori since before he could walk. And um, the methods of Montessori are very much about how do you develop intrinsic levels of drive so that there's a natural inclination for people to want to do things based on, you know, something that's important to them internally based on, you know, a participation award. And that's what we know, the participation awards, they just don't work. And in fact, not only do they not work, they completely fuck people up. And there's a, you know, there's a, there's a, a research paper or a number of research papers in one of Dan's book where he talks about where they went into a, a kindergarten and uh, their goal was to basically assess what were the implications and the effects of placing an extrinsic driver on top of someone who was already intrinsically motivated. And so they went into kindergarten classes, as far as I know, it's a few hundred of them. And um, they specifically targeted art, the art class and said, okay, guys, what we're going to do now for every single person that participates in the art class, we're going to give you a certificate and participation award with a gold star and it says that you participated in today's art class. Now, what they did prior to this experiment is identify three categories of kids. The first category of kids was the ones that love doing art. And they were going to do art no matter what because they love doing art. Internally, it lit them up. You know, they enjoyed it. They looked forward to it. It's something they actually got a lot of, you know, benefit and, and had a f- fun doing. The second category of kids were kids that enjoyed art, but not as much as the first category, but they still enjoyed it, but not as much. You know, it wouldn't be their first go-to thing to do, but if they got the opportunity to do it, 
they would certainly engage. And then there was the third category of kids that didn't like to do art. And in fact, um, you know, avoided doing art and were the disruptors of the class. And, and this is where it gets really interesting because what they did is they said, okay, everyone's going to get a participation award. And for the first two weeks, you know, they saw some very predictable behaviors. Category one, the kids who love to participate in art, guess what they did? They did art. Why? Because that's what they always did. The second category of kids who would do art when asked, wasn't their favorite thing to do, but would do, guess what they did? They also engaged in art. No surprises there. You know, and the third category, which is the one that they were obviously trying to target of kids that didn't do art for the first two weeks, guess what they did? They did art as well. You know, if you'd wrapped up the, you know, the experiment there, you would have gone, oh, well, you know, participation awards work. But no, they kept monitoring, you know, for a few months. And what they discovered within kids, it was two weeks. Adults, we have a little bit of a longer threshold. But after two weeks, that's when they started to see the real implications of placing an extrinsic driver over the top of someone who's already intrinsically motivated. The first category of kids after two weeks stopped participating and engaging at the level that they had been. The second category of kids stopped participating and engaging at the level that they had pre-experiment. And the third category of kids, they just stopped fucking doing art. You know, and but what was interesting by the end of it, what they discovered was they basically, you know, the category three, they weren't going to do art no matter what. Yeah, maybe they got them to participate for two weeks, but the other two categories, by virtue of taking their internal driver, their intrinsic, their internal joy and going, okay, well, you're no longer going to be doing it for that. You're now going to be doing it for this, a certificate. Just by virtue of doing that, they literally destroyed, you know, hundreds of kids drive. I know they probably went back and fixed it up. Well, hopefully they did. You know, when it came to pursuing something that they knew they already enjoyed. You know, and so when we look at intrinsic motivation, it's a big part of the puzzle. It's a massive part of the the performance game because at some point you've got to realize the world's not going to show up the way that I want every fucking day. You know, the people aren't going to show up as I want. The world's not going to show up as I want. The clients, the only person who I have control of in terms of how they or it shows up is myself. And that's where you've got to understand the intrinsic drivers are what determine the consistency and the level of progress that we're able to make in any area of life. You know, if you're just being a, if you want to be a great dad, because, you know, because you, you want to look good as a parent when you're down the supermarket, you know, you're going to look like a great dad when you're in the supermarket and you're going to be a shit dad, you know, everywhere else. But if we're trying to create levels of consistency, we have to attach an intrinsic driver to the things that are important to us so that there's a high level of not have to do something, but want to do something. And, you know, it's interesting because when you look at people who are intrinsically driven versus people who are extrinsically driven, there are a number of correlating factors. What they've identified is people who are intrinsically driven often have what is referred to as a growth mindset. People who are extrinsically anchored often have what's referred to as a fixed mindset. And when we start looking at what's required in order to achieve success, and we start looking at fixed and growth and other variables, and we start introducing concepts like grit, concepts like resilience. And here's what we know. You know, people that are intrinsically driven in most cases have higher levels of grit and resilience. Now, why do people who are intrinsically driven have higher, you know, rates of, uh, of grit and resilience? Because they have learned how to channel themselves. They've learned how to channel their focus and drive into things that they want to do. And even by virtue of it being hard, the fact that they want to do it has enabled them to continue to do it. Not because someone's telling them to do it, because they want to. And by virtue of them doing something hard that they want to do, they're learning how to do something hard. Okay. And, but when you flip that, 
and you get someone to do something hard who doesn't for someone who doesn't want to do it, you know, they may struggle, strain. In most cases, they may not even complete or won't complete. In some cases, maybe that they will, but they'll do it because they have to, not because they want to. And by virtue, they're not building resilience and grit. You know, they're maybe building a little bit of determination, maybe building a little bit of willpower. But here's what we know. A fixed mindset will struggle to develop resilience and grit. Okay, a fixed mindset will struggle to identify intrinsic markers to drive towards. And so the real goal here from a performance perspective is to set our world up so that we are, you know, consciously aware of what our intrinsic drivers are. What are our values? You know, consciously aware of the fact that by pursuing those things, there's going to be things that are hard, you know, and by virtue of pursuing things that are hard, that's going to develop a level of resilience and grit. But there's got to be a mindset behind that that drives the ability to adapt and adjust. And that's where we look at the fixed and the growth. And a fixed mindset is somebody goes, oh, no, this is how I am. Oh, look, I'd love to be able to do that, but I'm just not built that way. Oh, and they are people that believe that talent is innate. You know, talent is something that you're born with. It's not something you can develop. Whereas a growth mindset, on the flip side, someone who's got a growth mindset, they believe that something can be learned. They believe anything can be learned. And what's really interesting is when you look at the fMRI, a functional magnetic resonance image of someone's brain fixed versus a um, growth mindset, when you give a problem to someone who has a fixed mindset, like there's almost no no activity because they literally have this limiting belief right there that says, oh no, I can't do that. And so they don't even fucking try. And so their brain activity is almost nil. Whereas when you give a problem, you know, to someone who's got a growth mindset, their fucking fMRI lights up like a Christmas tree because their brain has the belief that, oh, I can work this out. I just have to, I just have to find a way, you know, and that's life. You know, when we look at it, whether it be success or parenting or, you know, entrepreneurship or even a relationship, that's life, you know? And so one of the things that we've got to understand is pursuit of anything great is going to be difficult. And so how do we do difficult things? By making sure that they're genuinely important to us. So if we think about money and participation awards, they're, they're basically the same thing, right? Participation award is the money for the kids and money for us is participation for the adults. And we wonder why you know, it comes back to that, that age old, you know, once you start to make some money, you realize that it's not about the money and money's never going to make you happy because you're putting this, this extrinsic value on the thing that you're doing. So even if you want to do it, your brain starts to say, well, I'm getting money for this thing and, and I'm being driven by the money. I don't really want the money. And so we, our brain starts to protect us and say, well, let's conserve energy. Let's not even do it. And we, we tend to give up. And that's sort of how I make sense of it for myself. But let me ask you, how do we, maybe we've identified that we're a bit fixed in our mindset. Uh, and we're not in, as much in a growth mindset. How do we start to shift that for ourselves so that we can be more intrinsically driven uh, and ultimately well, allow us to be That's a tough one because there's got to be a value on growth, you know, and if someone doesn't value learning, um, you know, then it's going to be, you know, very difficult for someone's mindset to shift. And it's not impossible. It just might take a significant event. Again, coming back to the awareness piece and understanding the psychology, the first layer of a psychology is the story. You know, that's the coding system. And you're either coding, you know, good code or you're coding viruses. You know, that ultimately then will then create your shortcut system, which is your belief system. And your belief systems determine how you filter, what you filter, what you see, what you hear. And it makes your brain, as I said, it creates a shortcut for the brain to be able to process information quickly. And then after a while, we develop the third layer of our psychology, which is our value system. And this is the most important part of, you know, the, the psychology when it comes from a, to a drive perspective. Because when you look at what a value system is, a value system is a motive system. It's a motive. It's a, something that's important. And so when things are important, and I mean legitimately important, not socially important, when someone's le- something is legitimately important, then all of a sudden we have a motive 
you know, to act on that. And I think if we start looking at one of the biggest things that prevents people from being able to, you know, develop drive is they actually don't know themselves very well. You know, and again, we come back to that conversation around awareness and consciousness. Most people don't have a relationship with self. So most people, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people where we talk about meditation and I share stories of, you know, the meditation practices that I've done and, you know, I've done this and that. And, you know, there's one meditation practice that I've done. It's, you know, 10 days vow silence. They separate the men and the women and you're meditating from 4.30 in the morning till 9.30 at night. And it's fucking hardcore. Like it's full contact meditation. And I, I share that story where I've done it seven times and I can't tell you how many times people say, oh man, that must've been really lonely. And it's like, well, it would be if you didn't have a relationship with yourself. You know, if you if you were completely isolated from yourself, if you didn't know yourself very well, you had to spend 10 days by yourself and do that more than once. Yeah, that would be fucking, that would be very lonely. But if you are have spent time alone, and this is where I think most people make the mistake. They don't spend enough time alone. They don't spend enough time, you know, in self-reflection and self-inquiry to really understand like what are the things that are legitimately important to me? Not based on what I'm telling you or not based on what I'm telling my friends or my family, based on what are my actual behaviors telling me? And that's not a, that doesn't mean just because I'm not displaying the behaviors that I want that I'm never going to be motivated to do the things that I need to. But when we can start identifying, you know, and money's a great one. Because everybody's motivated to make just enough, but not more, you know, and, and a lot of that comes down to, you know, ancestral stories. Money is the root of all evil. Money doesn't grow on trees. We start looking at the conditioning and the programming as kids that we receive when we watch cartoons, the rich people are the evil people. And, you know, there's this whole cultural consensus that money is bad. And as kids, we absorb that shit. We hear people, our parents fighting at home about money, you know, we start realizing that our parents divorced over, you know, over fights. And then just in our country, you know, two and three marriages end in divorce and 80% of divorces are over financial disputes. And so it's kind of interesting because money becomes this tangled hierarchy where people go, well, I need money. I want money, but I don't want money. And it's like, well, what do I want? And what I've discovered is when it comes to money, people always seem to make enough just to get by. But then if they get more than they need, they'll come up with the most creative ways to get rid of it very quickly. You know, whereas for me, one of the things that I'm, I've become hyper aware of is money is an incredible way to amplify the expression of values. But if you're not aware of that, so someone might say, well, I've got a based on what my behaviors are showing, I have no value on money whatsoever. Why? Because I'm not doing anything to make it or I'm doing very little to make it and I find it very difficult to keep the money that I've got. Okay. And so the value on money might be very low, but they've been told they need to value money in order to be able to have it. So they might say, well, no, I do value money and it is important, but their behaviors would say otherwise, but they do value family. And so that's where, you know, some of the exercises that I conduct with my client, I call this one, the Fortune 500, where I'll get a client to sit down and I'll get them to write the 500 benefits that making more money will have for their family. And what we're doing there is we're actually creating new neurology, new neural connections that enable people to essentially have, you know, energy running in pathways that have never been run before in their brain to start thinking in ways that they've never thought before. And then before you know it, all of a sudden, people start finding themselves wanting to do things to make money. And it's not because of the money, it's because of what the money can give the value. Money is is just an exchange. And, and I say it all the time as well. If, if, if I want to buy your pig from you and I've only got chickens and you don't want chickens, I've got to do all these 50 million trades to get the thing that you want so I can get the pig that I want. Money just allows that to happen more fluidly. Uh, it, it's, it's purely what we do with it and how we think about it. And, and I've had some really interesting guests on the show talking about uh, money and cash and, and understanding assets and things. And I think that you know we don't have time to, to dive into that, but I think that the biggest takeaway we can get from this is, is understanding that what it's really for and 
knowing how we can use it to fulfill the other things that we want to do. And I, I loved what you said with the, the, the Fortune 500. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and do that because no matter how much you know, we, we're exposed to positive psychology stuff and, and what we're telling ourselves and gratitude and you know, planning for these sorts of things, there is still around us, friends, family, people that we, we really care about, the news, the radio, we walk past and somebody's listening to something and we can hear some of it. There's always this narrative, especially with money, um, that I think is detrimental to, to a lot of people and keeps a lot of people in these holes that, that they find it hard to get out of. And to justify it, we have more beliefs that piled on top, which then perpetuate. Well, I don't care about money. Money is not important to me, you know? And yeah, people justify it. But, you know, I, and I'd say this to anyone who says that, you know, money is a, is a form of energy that you have a relationship with. And if you disrespect it, if you treat it poorly, then, you know, that will be, that will be reflected to you and your relationship with it. But there's no amount of poverty that you can acquire that will help you change the world. You know, because there are so many people out there that want to do great things, yet they have a terrible relationship with money. And it is the money that is going to enable them to do the great things that they want to do. You want to build an orphanage? Congratulations. I honor that intent. But do you have the capacity and the capability to be able to go out and execute something to produce the revenue or the income or the capital that enable you to build that orphanage? You know, oftentimes people look at Mother Teresa as a saint and she is. And yes, you know, if you investigate her history, there's some stuff that would make you probably flinch a little bit. But the thing that you can't get past is Mother Teresa's number one skill. And most people would assume that Mother Teresa's number one skill was her compassion and her love and, you know, her, her open heart. But when you start investigating Mother Teresa, you realize, fuck, she wasn't actually really well liked by a lot of people because she was a hard ass. You know, she was a ball buster. And one of the things that she was a hard ass and a ball buster at doing that created a lot of friction was her ability to raise capital. You know, she was a master when it came to getting money, raising capital or getting time from people. If someone couldn't give you, you know, if she was hitting you up for some money and you said, oh, I don't have any money, she'd go, well, surely you've got some time that you can give. You know, oh, I'm so time poor. Well, maybe you've got some money you can give. And, you know, that was her skill set. And she was able to, you know, create a significant impact in the work that she did based on her ability to develop a relationship with money in her in her pursuit to get it. I want to change change tact here for a bit as we as we kind of come to the end. How do you balance being sort of this this entrepreneurial celebrity, but still being a connected and an emotionally present father? You know that I've got two kids. Uh, yep. to an after-year-old and a, and a five-month-old. And I find that there's, there's these, these partitions almost, right? There is this dad, James, and then there's business, James. But at the same time, I know that who I am in my business world becomes reflected in who I am as a father and vice versa, because I'm learning from my kids. I'm learning from, from what I'm doing and, and everything, including even, you know, having you on the show, interviewing you and, and whoever else I talk to, there's this always this elevation and growth that happens because of it. But I'd love to get an idea from you. How do you, how do you balance that yourself from being really switched into this and then switching into to dad mode, for example? Just by giving my time where I am, like, you know, being where your feet are and understanding that it's never going to get perfect. I, you know, I consider myself to be one of the best dads on the planet, but I still make mistakes. You know, I still fuck it up and I still yell every now and then I still, you know, swear. And thankfully my son, you know, I have this relationship with my son that if I raise my voice or I yell, he has, you know, he has permission to be able to call me out and hold me to a higher standard of behavior. But, you know, I think sometimes people think, well, once, they, once you achieve a certain status, whether it be money, income, or, you know, reputation or, or, or celebrity, God forbid, that the, all the problems go away. They don't. 
you know, you, you just have to learn how to deal with them, you know, more effectively, especially if you've got greater levels of visibility. But, you know, but what I will say is this, it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's, it's just ongoing work. You know, my work doesn't stop the moment I go home, but I don't have any petitions in my life. Like the way I parent is the way I lead. The way I lead is very similar to the way I parent. And I, you know, the, the way I show up on stage is in many cases, the way I show up at home, although a few amps shorter, uh, a few amps less than, uh, than, than when I am on stage, but it's essentially the same guy. But I used to be the guy that would have the petition. You know, I used to, you know, have that line between business and home. And I just found it just incredibly taxing. And I just started to realize the more I can develop myself as a whole human being, the better off everyone in my circle is as a result of that. Because as a business owner, you don't realize until you do just how much parenting is involved as being a leader. You know, and when you have a kid, you just don't, you don't realize how much leadership is involved in being a parent. You know, and to me, my son has been the greatest inspiration and probably one of the greatest teachers that I've had when it comes to, you know, the the role of being a leader and being a leader in business is, you know, probably one of the most important aspects of the role of, of business because that's what ultimately determines your attractiveness to your team, you know, to, to create a culture that attracts even more of the right team and even more of the right clients. You know, there are no bad teams. There are just, Jocko Willink says it best and it's confronting as fuck. Sorry for the language. I'm not sure if this is a swearing podcast, but he says, um, you know, there are no bad teams, just bad leaders. And when you, you know, he takes that from, from Navy SEALs, you know, uh, discipline, you know, where they've had, you know, a team that's performing really badly and then all they do is they replace the leader and all of a sudden you've got a team that's performing at, you know, at level one. And, you know, that's pretty confronting as a parent to even entertain that concept that there are no bad families, just bad leaders. And I don't say bad parents. I say bad leaders because I'm not saying anyone's a bad parent, but I am saying as parents, we need to acknowledge and realize and become aware of the role of being a leader you know, outside of just being a disciplinarian, because most people look at being, a, you know, look at a parent as being a disciplinarian, not realizing that your 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 son, your daughters, you know, whoever's watching you, they're absorbing every single fucking thing you do, everything, and you're either passing down wisdom or you're passing down wounds or you're passing down warnings, you know, and um, oftentimes, you know, parents get to a point where they go, oh my god, I can't believe this generation. So, well, who the fuck brought them up? You know, so yeah, I think there's a lot to be learned from living a whole life versus a, uh, a segmented one. Yeah, I, I like that. And 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 having been told I was a you know a bad kid and uh, born difficult, etc. And then being a parent and and seeing my sons and especially you know having a two year old, it's it's a different it's a different game. And realizing that how I show up is is so important to how big time going to show up in his life in the future. Big time. It's, it's it's powerful and just being present. You said it right. Like if it's family time it doesn't have to be eight hours with the kids it's but when i'm there i'm there and then when yeah. I'm business I'm, I'm doing business and that means that you know i can i can do it well um yeah. last question for you is um you know what's what's the most valuable thing that you ever learned about myself probably you know and it's echoing what we're saying here you know the most valuable thing i've ever learned is is about me you know learning and, and again it's it seems so cliche or maybe it's not, I don't know. And, and at this point I'm not really attached, but you know, everything we want from life, we're expecting from ourselves. you know, and we are, as I started the conversation, we are trillion dollars of biotech, but how, how often do people really try and work out how to use a keyboard? You know, how often do people really try and work out how to use the screen, the monitor, 
you know, the, the Ram, the price, you know, how often do people get curious about themselves? You know, most of the time everyone's curious about money or relationships or sex or movies or whatever that shiny object is, you know, whereas I think, you know, as I said, it all comes down to what's going on on the inside. And, you know, the greatest thing I've ever learned is about myself. And the more I learn about myself, the, the more I realize how much I've got to learn and how many, and it's kind of ironic because I was having this thought this morning when I was training my dog, you know, the more I get to know myself, the more I become aware of, of my wounds, of my problems, of my challenges. And it's kind of interesting, but then the more work I have to do by virtue of becoming aware of that. And it's, it's, it's ironic, you know, it, it really is. And I, going back 20 years ago, I didn't think I had anywhere near as many problems as what I do now. <laughs> now I'm just a lot more aware of the problems that I've had, you know, and I've just, you know, approached them with a level of diligence and awareness and wherever I can compassion in the work that I do to, to resolve them. I love that. At the start, you said that, right? There's, there's problems that you're aware of uh, or believe you're aware of and those you're not. And I think that most of us are unconscious to it yeah. because we're unconscious or we switch it off because when you start to realize that there are a lot of problems and what that affords you is opportunity to improve and grow because you've got this trillion dollar biocomputer, like that's scary for some people and would rather just switch Very. off and pretend. But like if you yeah. had the, if, if you were given the you know most powerful computer in the world that could do all kinds of crazy stuff, would you be playing Minesweeper on it? You know what I mean? Or would you be doing some some proper work? And do I, you know why so few people do want to work out how to use their own computer, work out how to only use, use, use themselves or get to know themselves? Because it's a lot easier to expect or to blame someone else for where we are than it is to complete. See, here's the thing. Once you start to get to know who you are in yourself, you start to realize, fuck, everything's my fault. And that is mega confronting, you know, and it takes an enormous level of responsibility and ownership to look at your life and go, fuck, it's all my fault. I really want to blame someone else here, you know, but I can't, it's all me. And, you know, the more work that I've done on myself, the more problems that I've uncovered and the more wounds that I've discovered and done the work to heal and resolve, the more I've realized everything is me, has been for a very long time. And, uh, you know, the sooner you can get to that point, the easier life's going to be. Look, if I'm late, it's because the uh, the bus driver and the moon and the president. And if you're late, it's because you're lazy and got up uh, too late, yeah. right? And it's just how it's just it's just the narrative that we use. And and when we start to say maybe it's actually you know me, and maybe they've got some stuff going on. That's why they're reacting like that. And we're more compassionate and and we're more self aware. I think things start to change. This has been an incredible episode. I really appreciate you. Uh, where can where can people connect with you online? Thank you, mate. I'm all across um, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube. Um, and yeah, we have some incredible stuff that we've got coming out very shortly. Uh, we've got the Fast Growth Accelerator that's just about to go around Australia. We have another program called the Accelerator, which we run online every now and then. And we've also got our premium programs like Nail It and Scale and K to Elite and Power to Create. But you can find all of that on kerwinray.com uh, and more information. And we give away so much content, as you know. Mate, you've been following us for a while across the social networks and social channels. So if people want to you know, you don't have to buy something to get something. You can just go, just go and get something and uh, learn something new. Yeah, I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Take it easy. No worries, James. Thanks, mate. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Everything shared will be in the description of the episode so you can go and grab that. Now, if you enjoyed the show and you want to listen to more, please subscribe because every week we're releasing new episodes with inspiring people, successful people, so you can level up your game. So subscribe and also leave us a review. We'd love to hear feedback about the show and your thoughts and opinions there as well. Now, if you want to have more success, whether it's in your life, whether it's in your business, we run live trainings every single week where you can get access to me to coach you through everything from health, wealth, success, business, 
We're doing topics on all things that you need to live a better, more inspired and successful life. Live trainings every single week. Just visit jamesnielsenwatt.com forward slash live and you can get access to that now. There's also a ton of resources that you get for just listening to the show. All of that will be in the description. So if you are watching this on YouTube, check the description. If you're listening to this episode, check the description. We've got a load of resources there for you to have more success in your life, whether it's relationships, investing, or in business. I'll see you on the next episode. And as always, subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends because there's somebody else that needs to be hearing this, and maybe you're their opportunity to help them level up their game.